Hello there, and welcome to The Road to Nicaea, Christ, Creed, and Controversy in the Turbulent Fourth Century, part of the Earth and Altar Podcast Network. Episode 2, Exclusive and Flourishing, The Church of the Third Century. Last time we explored the late ancient world that would form the recent past for the Christians of Nicaea. Now it's time to focus our exploration on the church of this same time frame. Where had the church gotten to by the year 300? What was it like? What was its structure? What would an average Sunday have looked like for a Christian in the second century? Now, before I get going trying to answer those questions, I need to preface them with five words that you're going to be hearing a lot during the course of this episode. Ready? Here they are. We don't know for sure. Doing ancient history involves more guesswork and conjecture than doing more comparatively modern history. This is largely because the main way we know what happened in any time period is through texts, you know, things like books, pamphlets, and diary entries. Now, in the late ancient Roman world, most paper is made from papyrus, which means that it is rare, expensive, and most crucially, plant-based, which means that it degrades rather quickly. You see, texts just didn't last very long, which meant that if you wanted to preserve a story for future generations, you needed to hire people to copy it out by hand over and over and over as the old texts wore out. People with the money and interest to fund this sort of perpetual copying venture were few and far between, which means that only the most important texts are the ones that have come down to us today. There is a whole bunch of knowledge that has simply been lost to history, and there are inevitable gaps in our podcast as a result. Now, the situation was a little bit better last time when we were talking about the politics of the Roman Empire, because emperors are the sort of people who do have the money and inclination to pay a whole bunch of scribes to copy out reports of their deeds ad nauseum. And while historians have to sift through all the self-congratulation and propaganda in these kinds of reports, at least we have the historical data to work with. Emperors also liked to inscribe their greatest deeds on public monuments, arches, statues, temples, the like. Many emperors also minted commemorative coins of their great victories. Now, metal and stone tend to last a lot longer than paper which both inflated imperial egos and was a very thoughtful gift to later generations of church history podcasters. Christians, as a rule, did not have the time or money to spend engraving their church meeting minutes on rocks. They were people of the book. Now, by this I mean that Christians read deeply and reflected on their sacred scriptures, those documents today we call the Bible, but I also mean that Christians just really seem to like books. In fact, they appear to be some of the earliest adopters of the Codex, which is the form of a book we're familiar with today, basically a bunch of pages bound together on a central spine. Up until this point in history, most books were actually written on scrolls. The move from scroll to Codex was a big win for readers. Before, if you had a long scroll, it was really annoying to have to unwind the whole thing just to find the one part that you wanted to read. It was much, much easier to just flip through a codex and find the page you were on before. 
but Codices had one critical flaw for historians, which is that it is much, much easier for a page to just fall out of the middle of a book. Because of the way a scroll is wrapped up nice and tight, you can trust that most of the damage on a scroll will be at the ends and not at the middle. With a codex, there is just no way of knowing. So Codices saved the early Christians countless hours of rolling and unrolling scrolls, but they cost early church historians untold hours of sleep trying to piece together various fragments of text. I tell you this partly by way of long-winded apology for the amount of throat clearing I have to do in this episode, but also to correct a common misconception. You might hear that the reason we don't have certain documents from the early church is because those documents were deemed heretical and destroyed. Now, up to the year 300, this is simply not true. Remember, Christians don't really have any political power in the Roman Empire to speak of for the first 300 years of history, which meant they have no mechanism for enforcing conformity. The reason most of the books from the first 300 years of church history were lost is the same reason most documents from that period were lost. The ravages of time and a society that had better things to do than hire expensive scribes to recopy every word that Penn had put to papyrus. The fact that we have as much as we do is a testament to how invested Christians were in the written word. All that being said, what can we know about the early Christians round about 300 AD and before? For starters, we know that there were a lot more of them than before. Christianity enjoyed a period of substantial growth during the chaotic 3rd century. The 3rd century was generally a time during which Christianity was pretty well tolerated by the empire. This may be in no small part because the Roman emperors and imperial aspirants were too busy intriguing and assassinating each other to worry over much about religious conformity, but the details are, as with so many things, murky. We do know that there was a period of complete religious tolerance in the empire from 260 to the outbreak of the Great Persecution in the early 300s. This time of toleration allowed Christians to make their case to the outside world without fear of reprisal. And they were quite successful in doing so. Our best estimates suggest that Christians made up about 10% of the Roman Empire by 300 AD. Now, of course, that's nowhere close to a majority share. However, it does mean that they are common enough that almost everybody will have met at least a few Christians and have formed opinions about them. For reference, Self-identified atheists and agnostics together make up about 11% of the population of the United States today. So you can think of 4th century Christians as having a similar level of name recognition and familiarity as modern-day atheists and agnostics. While it's hard to generalize too much, it does seem to be true that Christianity was especially popular in those parts of the Roman Empire where class boundaries were most fluid. The landed aristocracy was very much tied to the history of ancient Rome, including its traditional gods. Rural peasants were generally off the beaten track of Christian evangelists, who used the same roads that Roman elites did to get from city to city. And those rural peasants were more likely to continue worshipping the same gods their ancestors had as they farmed the same land that their ancestors had. But in the cities, and especially among the civil servants and uprooted middle class, Christianity found an audience. Peter Brown puts the point beautifully in The World of Late Antiquity, and I quote, A group in which there was neither slave nor free might strike an aristocrat as utopian or subversive. 
Yet, in an age where the barriers separating the successful freedmen from the de classe senator were increasingly unreal, a religious group could take the final step of ignoring them. In Rome, the Christian community of the early 3rd century was a place where just such anomalies were gathered and tolerated. The church included a powerful freedman chamberlain of the emperor. Its bishop was the former slave of that freedman. It was protected by the emperor's mistress and patronized by noble ladies. How and why did the church's message come to resonate with this group of people at this point in time? That's not a rhetorical question. I'm, I'm seriously asking because nobody has any firm idea. There are theories, of course, but they're all quite controversial. So if you can figure it out, there's a PhD and a multi-million dollar book deal waiting for you. But while we await the definitive explanation, there are several factors that likely contributed to its appeal. The first of these, paradoxically enough, was Christianity's exclusivity. Unlike most other religions in antiquity, Christianity claimed that there was only one God who created the entire world and all that is in it. Now, depending on which Christian you asked, all the gods of other religions were either figments of pagan imagination or demons who had tricked the people of the world into worshipping them. This was one of the things that got Christians in trouble with the Roman Empire. As we talked about last time, the Roman Empire's religious policy was pretty simple. You could worship whatever gods you wanted, so long as you also worshipped the Roman pantheon. This usually included making a yearly sacrifice for the health and probably worship of the Roman emperor, who was often assumed to become a god upon his death. Of course, Christians were unwilling to make this sacrifice as per their whole only one god policy. But at the same time, this gave Christians an extraordinary sense of belonging that most other religions simply could not duplicate. The chaotic 3rd century, with all its political upheavals and instability, only exaggerated the sense of unmooring from tradition that many Roman citizens felt. It was important to be part of something, and traditional Roman religion didn't provide that for an increasing number of folks. Traditional Roman religion was about patriotism, and about doing what your ancestors did, but it wasn't a religious community in the way that modern religions often provide. Christians, by contrast, had a very strong sense of group solidarity. Not only did they see themselves as the harbingers of God's salvation, but they also had a strong ethic of care for one another. Pagan critics of Christianity noted, with alternating scorn and begrudging admiration, that the way Christians cared for their poor, widowed, and sick members was something truly unique. While not all churches were equally charitable, for many Romans, being a Christian meant having a kind of social insurance. No matter what happened to you in life, you wouldn't have to go through it alone. But Christianity offered more than an exclusive society. It also proclaimed itself to be the best continuation of classical pagan culture in the 4th century. You see, among early Christians, there was a special breed of writer known as an apologist. Despite what that name sounds like, apologists were not writers who were really good at apologizing for things. Their name comes from the Greek word apologia, which means defense. And apologists were writers and speakers who excelled in defending Christianity from accusations that it was irrational, anti-Roman, superstitious, or just otherwise suspicious. Several important writers in the first centuries of Christianity argued that there was no contradiction between being a Christian and an inheritor of Greco-Roman tradition. 
they taught that Jesus Christ was the incarnate Word of God. Now, the first chapter of the Gospel of John says that all things were made by the Word of God, and that without him not one thing was made. So, if Jesus Christ was the one who made the whole world, both Jew and Gentile, then it only made sense that Jesus had implanted seeds of the gospel truth in every nation and people, not just within Judaism. Apologists took the Apostle Paul as their model. You may remember from the book of Acts, when Paul preached in the Acropolis of Athens, he found a shrine dedicated to the worship of an unknown god. Paul then stood up and happily announced to the Athenians that he knew all about this unknown god and would be just thrilled to tell them all about that god. This was basically the apologetical strategy. They assumed that the best of Greek and Roman thought had some kind of unconscious, implicit grasp of the truths that Jesus Christ had made explicit. And as such, the apologists saw parallels between the great Greek philosophers Socrates and Plato and the teachings of Judaism. It's not hard to see Socrates' death and trial at the hands of the Athenians as a striking parallel to Jesus' own trial and crucifixion. In one particularly striking and amusing case of this kind of appropriation, several early apologists stated that Greek philosophers had copied Judaism's class notes in creating their famous thoughts. Numenius of Apamea is reported to have once quipped, what is Plato but an atticizing Moses? It seems to have been common among Christians and Jews to believe that Plato had traveled to Egypt and met large communities of Jews who had lived there, so the claim is not quite as far-fetched as it sounds. That being said, it's still pretty unlikely. Even if we don't think that Plato or Socrates personally knew the Hebrew scriptures, though, the apologists drew explicit connections between the best of Greek and Roman thought and the Jewish and Christian scriptures. This mattered, especially in a time of such political and cultural upheaval as late antiquity. Remember, friends, the world is changing. And not just because of all the succession crises. The Roman Empire reached the zenith of its territory in 176. By the time our story gets going, the Roman Empire is in decline. And though they can't know it, the days of its greatest thinkers and statesmen are largely in its past. A religion that acknowledged those changes while also claiming to carry forward the best of the past was extremely persuasive to a segment of the population. And that is precisely what Christianity did. So what was church like in those days? How could you become a member? And what was your life like once you became one? Well, if you wanted to join the church, you first went through a period of instruction and guidance in the faith. People in this phase were called catechumens, and that period of time was called the catechumenate. Now, your time in the catechumenate varied depending on how your local church did things, but it almost certainly lasted at least a year, and it ended with your baptism. While you were in the catechumenate, you were welcome to come to church, but you would be sent home halfway through the service. Most churches celebrated the Eucharist, also called Holy Communion or the Lord's Supper, every single week. But catechumens were not able to partake of that mystical bread and wine. That was available only to those who were baptized. So they would sit tight for the first part of the service, hear the scripture, sing the songs, listen to the sermon, and then, before the Eucharist began, 
the catechumens were dismissed from the service so that only the baptized would remain. All of which means, of course, that the road to Nicaea is brought to you by the catechumenate. Are you tired of your old salvation provider? Feel like you've gotten all you can out of your Western Roman pantheon and looking for some Eastern wisdom? Why not try the catechumenate? You'll hear all the best teachings of Jesus of Nazareth. Worried it's too much commitment? Don't worry, with our special half-Sunday plan, you'll be dismissed after the sermon so you can still catch brunch with all your Mithras-worshipping buddies. Enjoy one-on-one -on -one intention from our best instructors and gain access to our best-in-the-empire healthcare network. Call your local priest for details. Eucharist not available. Mithras quality brunch is not guaranteed. It was not uncommon for people to spend most of their lives in the catechumenate. Some people, of course, moved quickly to baptism and happily spent their Sundays getting the full service, but many others were more hesitant than that. Now, the main reason for this was not a lack of devotion. It had to do with the book of Hebrews, chapter 6. Verses 1 through 6 of that chapter read as follows. Therefore, let us go on toward perfection, leaving behind the basic teaching about Christ and not laying again the foundation, repentance from dead works and faith toward God, instruction about baptisms and laying on of hands, resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And we will do this if God permits. For it is impossible to restore again to repentance those who have once been enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away since they are crucifying again the Son of God to their own harm and are holding him up to contempt. Here ends the reading. Now, that first part from Hebrews sounded to a lot of early Christians like it was talking about the catechumenate, all that stuff about basic instruction about who Jesus was and preparation for baptism, which meant that the second half of that passage sounded like it was saying that after you had been baptized and partaken of the Eucharist, tasted the good word of God, in other words, that if you sinned after that, that was it. You were doomed to hell, and there was no more forgiveness of sins for you. Now, that's almost certainly a bad interpretation of Hebrews chapter 6. We know that most bishops railed against the practice of delaying baptism, and there's no indication at all that the author of Hebrews knew anything about a formal catechumenate. But that was still the interpretation that stuck with a lot of pious, faithful Christians, and thus many of those committed to the faith spent their lives on the doorstep of the church, accepting baptism only on their deathbeds, when the risk of sin was lowest. Now, aside from those many lay people and catechumens, how was the church of the early 4th century organized? Well, we don't really know for sure. But what we do know is that it changed a lot over the course of Christianity's four centuries, and that there were probably some significant variations from place to place. Now, part of this variation was because Christianity was generally illegal. Just because they weren't being persecuted didn't mean that Christians felt safe to gather together in the open from all across the empire to hammer out the finer points of all their rules of order for their parish meeting minutes or to standardize their papyrus provider. So Christian churches communicated with each other sporadically, often letting each other's different practices alone. 
But of course, the other reason for this disparity was that the Bible doesn't spell out the exact leadership structure the church is supposed to take. Now, some of the epistles attributed to St. Paul do spell out three distinct types of leadership. The deacons, or diakonos in Greek, the priests, or presbyteros in Greek, and finally the episkopoi, usually translated as bishop, but the more literal meaning is overseer. It's not clear whether one person can occupy multiple roles, or if being in one of these orders excludes you from being in the other. The only thing that seems reasonably clear is that the episkopoi were supposed to be in charge of the other ministers. Why is that clear? Well, again, because the word literally means overseer, and you can't oversee very well if you aren't in charge. That being said, remember that many early Christian communities were quite small, perhaps small enough to fit in a modest house. And so leadership might have been a fairly informal thing in the first and second century. As my seminary professor used to say, all these titles may have meant was that when you have six people together for worship, one of them is a bit more in charge than the others. In other words, the bishop may have simply been the one setting up tables and chairs and making sure everybody showed up on time. But the churches grew, and with them grew the responsibilities of leadership. Now, we don't know how those leaders, those bishops, were chosen. It's possible that in some early congregations, the bishop was regarded as a special ministry that required its own separate ordination service and carried unique responsibilities, kind of like the way the Roman Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, and Anglican traditions do today. It's also possible that other early congregations viewed the bishop as an honorary title for the most senior pastor at a given church, kind of like many Baptist and Congregationalist ministries organize their churches today. And still others may have chosen a bishop to serve not as a separate, special, ordained role, but as a unique ministry within the priesthood, rather like many Lutherans and Methodists do today. But however they were viewed, bishops of all stripes shared one job in common, keeping unity and addressing conflicts in their churches, which often meant that they were engaged in a ceaseless struggle against the two forces constantly threatening that unity. Heresy and schism. Now, these two words are going to show up a lot in our story, so let's take a second to unpack them. A schism is when someone in the church decided they didn't like the job that somebody else was doing, and so declared that they were now in charge instead. There usually weren't significant differences of doctrine in a schism. The issue was not what people believed about God, but about who was in charge and how good of a job they were doing, or not doing, depending on which side of the schism you fell on. We have good evidence of schisms going back almost to the beginning of Christianity. A bishop named Ignatius of Antioch, who may have been the direct disciple of St. Peter, wrote a series of letters to churches in his care in the early first century. Among the many topics of his letters was repeated requests to several different churches to please stop schisming so much. In at least one of these communities, it appears that a group of young men in the church had decided the older generation of priests and deacons were doing a poor job of leading the church, so they simply ordained themselves and started serving instead. Ignatius is adamant that this kind of behavior is unacceptable. In fact, he goes so far as to say that anybody who does this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Of course, part of the reason he is so verklempt about all this is that he knows he actually can't do all that much to stop it. 
Christian bishops ultimately operated on the basis of persuasion rather than force. There was no enforcement authority to tell these young schismatics to knock it off. Especially in these early centuries, when each church, or at most each city, was basically fending for itself, the possibility of a schism succeeding was substantial and not to be ignored by the wise bishop. Now, in addition to schisms, the early church also faced a set of movements that they would come to label as heresies. Now, heresy is a pretty contested word, so just like with schism, let's break down what it really means. Some people today will call any belief that they disagree with a heresy. Others will speak as though a heresy is any far-out or unconventional belief. For example, something like a Christian using tarot cards might get labeled as a heresy. Neither of these are accurate uses of the word. The early church had plenty of diverse beliefs, and plenty of Christians combined their faith with other spiritual practices without being labeled heretics. Heresy comes to us from a Greek word hieresis, and that word means choice. In the eyes of the early church, heretics were teachers or authorities who had heard the message of Jesus and, having not been sufficiently impressed by it, chose to make some modifications to bring it into line with what they thought was right. Now, the most notorious example of this behavior in the early church was a man named Marcion of Sinope. Marcion taught that there were actually two gods, not one. The God revealed in the Old Testament was a cruel, vengeful, and bloodthirsty being who demanded sacrifice and had created the world as a result of his own pride. The reason Marcion thought the material world was so full of suffering is because it was created by this evil God. The God of the New Testament was a completely separate being, all good and loving, to whom Marcion gave the evocative title of the Stranger. And this God, the stranger, had sent Jesus Christ into the world to break the false God's sway and rescue people from the evil material world they were trapped in. Now, Marcion's teachings ran into a few problems when reading the Bible, in part because Jesus himself says there's only one God who revealed himself to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, gave the Jewish law to Moses in the Old Testament, and has now sent Jesus to be incarnate. In other words, this one God has been revealed through both the Old and the New Testaments. Marcion solved this contradiction basically by just saying that those bits of the Bible were fake news. Marcion thought the only books that were truly biblical were the Gospel of Luke and most of St. Paul's letters. The entire Old Testament and the rest of the New, having not particularly impressed Marcion, were thrown out. You can probably see why Marcion was not great for the early church's collective blood pressure. The reason Marcion was a heretic was not just because he had strange ideas about God that other Christians didn't share. After all, 90% of the Roman Empire was non-Christian, and they had strange ideas about God from their perspective. That didn't make them heretics, it just made them non-Christian. What made Marcion a heretic was his habit of revising or outright rejecting essential basic components of Christian teaching and scripture, while still claiming to be a faithful Christian. Heresy, in other words, was not a rejection of faith. Heresy was an attempt to warp and distort the faith, which many Christians found far more dangerous than mere rejection of it. Now, bishops had several tools for responding to heretical teachings. Most obviously, they could just ban heretics from teaching where they had authority. 
their house, their rules, which meant no Bible-cutting, goodness-of-the-world-denying Marcians in their churches, thank you very much. But of course, the problem was bigger than any one local church. And sometimes the people teaching heretical doctrines were themselves bishops, or priests or deacons in a different diocese that the angry bishop had no authority over. In these cases, proto-Orthodox and proto-heretical communities engaged in a long, drawn-out battle of persuasion, with each side trying to convince the other that their approach to God was the more faithful one. In so doing, they often appealed to a nifty little idea called the rule of faith. Now, despite the fact that I'm speaking of that in the singular, the rule of faith, there was no one rule of faith in antiquity. And the rules that we have weren't even really a set of rules in the modern sense. They weren't prohibitions. In other words, there was no, thou shalt take only one donut at coffee hour until everyone else has had a chance to take one. Or, thou shalt not refer to Jesus as a totally cool dude. No rules like that in the rule of faith. Rather, the rule of faith was more like a modern ruler or a straight edge. It was a standard by which you could measure your own teaching. A really good example of a rule of faith that has come down to us today is the Apostles' Creed. In fact, as you'll note, the very title suggests that its contents were the basic facts handed on by Jesus to his followers, and from them all the way down to us. If you're not familiar with it, I'll recite that creed right now. Here is what it says. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. The idea behind the Apostles' Creed appears to be that if you wind up saying something contrary to this rule of faith, you've gone astray and need to check yourself, lest you wreck your immortal soul on the rocks of heresy. So, for example, when Marcion teaches that Jesus was not the Son of the God who made the earth, he is violating this rule of faith, the Apostles' Creed, and hence a heretic. Now, rules of faith were intended to be bare-bones documents. They didn't solve every theological question, and indeed many theologians could disagree with each other without being heretics. The goal of a rule of faith was simply to be the fence, defining the boundaries of acceptable Christian speech about God. Now, as I said earlier, there was no one uniform rule of faith that everybody followed, but that didn't mean that people were just making up rules of faith willy-nilly. The Apostles' Creed in its current form goes back to the 5th century about, although it's based on documents older than that. But way back in the 2nd century, we can see a famous bishop, Irenaeus of Lyon, defining a similar rule of faith in the struggle against heresy. And I quote, this faith in one God, the Father, the Almighty, who made the heaven and the earth and the seas and all the things that are in them, and in one Christ Jesus, the Son of God, who was made flesh for our salvation, and in the Holy Spirit, who made known through the prophets the plan of salvation, 
and the coming, and the birth from a virgin, and the passion, and the resurrection from the dead, and the bodily ascension into heaven of the beloved Christ Jesus our Lord, and his future appearing from heaven in the glory of the Father to sum up all things, and to raise anew all flesh of the whole human race. End quote. We see a few common factors between this and the Apostles' Creed. There are three key figures mentioned, God the Father, God's Son Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit. There is also a basic summary of the events of the four Gospels that we find in each one, specifically about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and about his future coming. Now, I want to emphasize two things about the rule of faith as it was passed down. The first thing is that it assumes that just reading the Bible is not going to be enough to resolve an argument. Early Christians knew full well that the Bible could be confusing and that parts of it apparently contradicted each other, and that some parts of it were just flat-out strange. I mean, guys, have you read the Bible? There are ghosts! And God smiting people for what seems like no particular reason! And rules against mixing linens! And a completely uncalled-for takedown of Cretans! The Bible, early Christians knew, was not a self-explaining guide to life. It was more like a jigsaw puzzle or a mosaic. Depending on how you arranged the pieces you had, you could make almost any image you wanted. A king? A dog? A bird? The rule of faith was there to tell you what kind of a picture you were supposed to make. Now, I think this is particularly important to keep in mind in the modern day and how Scripture is viewed now. Since the Reformation, Protestants and Catholics have argued their jaws off about this idea called sola scriptura, which is the principle that the Bible alone is the authoritative source of Christian doctrine and ethics. For Protestants who maintain sola scriptura, the idea that any church tradition could claim authority over the Bible is sheer arrogance. God, they say, is the ultimate author of the Bible, and so we should always listen to the Bible over merely human wisdom. Catholics, on the other hand, will point to traditions like the rule of faith to say that, look, if you try to make the Bible the end-all be-all of Christian living, you're going to run into trouble because people will always interpret it so differently. If the church can't proclaim God's will with authority, what stops religion from just becoming a giant free-for-all of interpretations, where everybody can get the Bible to say whatever they want? Now, I'm not here to weigh in on this debate one way or another. That is what my personal Twitter account is for, of course. But I do want to point out that the rule of faith may offer a third way of thinking about this. Because what a rule of faith offers is a tradition but it's a tradition about how to interpret the Bible. It's not a set of doctrines outside of the Bible or contradicting it. It's instructions about how to read the Bible, and those instructions are based within the text itself. If you read the Bible, you'll hear about the Father and the Son and the Spirit. The rule of faith says make sure you don't forget about them. You'll read about how Jesus was born, lived, died, and rose again. And the rule of faith would say, if you say anything that denies all of that, you've missed the plot. It's kind of like a Sparknotes version of the Bible in that way. And as such, the rule of faith can acknowledge both that the Bible is of supreme importance for Christians and that the Bible can be really weird and confusing, and we need help to read it properly. So that's the first thing I want to say about this. Ancient history, as always, offers something to both delight and perplex all sides of modern controversies. 
The second thing I want to say about the rule of faith is that it is emphatically public. People weren't creating rules of faith willy-nilly in part because they wanted to cite historical precedent. Those who talk about a rule of faith are essentially saying to their opponents, look, this is the basics of the Christian faith. Why is it the basics of the Christian faith? Well, because I can give you a list of bishops in key cities that can trace their lineage all the way back to the apostles. And those bishops got up every Sunday and preached to everybody in the room about these fundamentals I just told you. So if you contradict them, you are contradicting the gospel as it has been received by everybody since the beginning. Now, there's a lot more that we could say about this idea, of course, but what I want to do now is just bring it back to that age-old question of the ministry of the bishop, which is institutional. In other words, the bishop's ministry is one of public accountability and administration because their teaching is open to everyone to learn from and to measure their own beliefs against. And of course, bishops were expected not to be teaching on their own authority, but on those of the apostles and their successors. In this way, bishops and their teachings often were referred to as sort of defining the rule of faith. Now, this approach had all the advantages of institutional leadership. The teachings were frequent, public, and relatively clear. They were made by educated clergy who had spent a lifetime in prayer and service, and who had links back to Jesus himself. But bishops also had all the disadvantages of institutional leadership. They could be a bit ossified and sometimes pretty inflexible. They had a lot of obligations and so were pressed for time. And sometimes the wrong person became a bishop and just did a bad job of it. Maybe they were ineffective communicators. Maybe they became heretics. Maybe their sermons were just too boring. But in any case, Christians were often hungry in this time period for a different sort of authority than the bishops. An authority grounded more in individual charisma and godly living than in lines of succession and church politics and formal statements of faith. Next time, we'll meet a few of those alternative sources of authority. Charismatic teachers, martyrs, and monks, whose rich spiritual legacies continue to enrich us today even as they exasperated the bishops of their time. Come along and decide whether they are highways or dead ends along the road to Nicaea. This is an Earth and Altar Podcast Network production. For more podcasts and weekly articles, visit us at earthandaltermag.com.